All right. To get started today, I want you guys to humor me for a second. I really want you guys to imagine the story I'm getting ready to tell. If you have to close your eyes, as long as you can stay awake, feel free to do so. Uh, I'm gonna, I assume you're going to be asleep in 20 minutes anyway, but we're going we're gonna to start with this. So I really want you to imagine the details of the story. All right, in northern Italy, uh, there are these beautiful, picturesque mountains. In the summertime, they're extremely green. There is much uh, growth on them, trees and, and, and grass and, and shrubs and things like that. They are beautiful mountains. Then wintertime comes, right? And any postcard you've ever seen with a beautiful snow-capped mountain, this is what these mountains look like. It's a beautiful, beautiful place, the quintessential postcard mountains, okay? On top of that, there's this monastery. It's a beautiful monastery. Monks, monks live there. Below that, quaint little village, just little village people going about their business in northern Italy, doing what northern Italians do, whatever that is. I've never been there. The monk, every day, making his way, this slow, arduous, arduous path down the mountain. He loves the people of this village. Every day he makes his way down to the village to say mass for the people. He loves them. He sacrifices for them. He goes to them every day to serve them. One morning on his way down, he looks to the side of the path and he sees a, a small bird that has fallen from its nest. Now, it's not hurt. It's not dead. It's just very cold because there's snow everywhere. So he, he thinks, you know what? If I can warm this bird up, it will probably survive and I will have done good for this bird. So he picks up the bird very gently and lovingly, places it next to his warm body under his overcoat, and continues on down the path. Now he gets to church, and outside of the church he notices the bird has livened up some. It's wiggling around in there, it's moving, uh, it's not ready to fly just yet, but he understands, you know what, I'm going in here to say mass, it might not be a good thing to take the bird with me, so what am I going to do? So he looks around at his surroundings, and he spots a nice warm cow pie. Cows walk through this path. They do what cows do on the path. He sees it. It's still steaming. He knows that it's warm. He knows that this will protect the bird. Places the bird very lovingly and gently into that. And he expects to retrieve it when he comes back from saying mass. A few moments pass. The bird starts feeling a little bit better. Starts singing. Starts chirping loudly. It starts living the life, right? Even though he's in a cow pie, he's, he's happy, he is revived, he starts singing. This attracts the attention of a hungry fox. The fox quickly goes over, examines the cow pie, sees what is in it, grabs the bird out of the cow pie, and chews it up, swallows it, and has its breakfast. Have a good day. All right, so that's not the end of the sermon. One, I could never preach that short. And two, you guys are probably very confused right now. There are morals in this story, though. There are lessons to be learned in this story. And this is the turn we are taking in Jesus' ministry. If you don't believe me, there, there are lessons to be learned. One, the person that puts you in the mess is not always your enemy. Two, the person that gets you out of the mess is not always your friend. And three, when you're in up to your neck in the mess, maybe you should just keep your mouth shut. Those are the lessons, right? That's the sermon right there. If, if I'm living in Jesus' time, that's the sermon. 
It would be the last time I ever got to preach here if that really was my sermon this morning, so enjoy that while it lasts. But this week we are continuing through Matthew, but we take a major shift and a major turn here in Jesus' ministry. And it's not because we are shifting gears, it is because Jesus shifts gears. We see him go from traveling around, itinerant, healing people, he's raising people from the dead, he's casting out demons, he's doing all of these things in front of vast masses of people and then he goes from that to telling stories that have points just like the one I just told but many people are looking at him the same way you guys were just looking at me as I told that story you should have seen your faces I don't know if y'all looked around but I did many people are looking at Jesus that way they're they're saying what in the world are you talking about, Jesus? Like, you were, you were making sense. You see, take a look back. Last week, we talked about the family of God, right? Jesus is teaching. People are coming to him. The disciples are kind of cutting them off, saying, don't interrupt, don't interrupt. And, and then the, the mother and brothers of Jesus try to come and get in, and he says, no, 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 this is my family. Very straightforward teaching. It's not veiled in secrecy. This is my family. If you are a follower of me, I not only consider you friend, I not only consider you disciple, I consider you family. Very straightforward. And then, if you look at the very first words of chapter 13, it says, that same day. So, think about it. If it's that same day, it's probably mostly the same people that he was just speaking to. I doubt there was just a huge mass exodus and then a whole new group of people came in it was probably mostly the same people because it was that same day they were they were eager they wanted to hear what Jesus was going to say they were it seems it seems as if they were just kind of waiting around for Jesus to reappear and tell them another lesson or perform another miracle or heal someone again or cast out another demon or something but you see it says that they crowded him so much that he had to get on a boat and, and go out into the water a little bit, leaving them on the beach. So they were clearly eager to see what he was going to say next. There was something about this man that was enthralling. They wanted to know. They were intrigued. They wanted to know, okay, what's next, Jesus? What are you going to say this time? And then he tells the story that we just read. Let's read it again, verses 3 through 9. It says, And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Imagine you're there. Tell me something, Jesus. I want to know the next nugget of wisdom you've got for us. I want to know how to live this life. And he tells that story. Now, most of us have been in church enough. We kind of get the gist of this story. And we will talk about that here in a few minutes because Jesus explains it himself. But imagine you were there that day and you have not heard this parable explained. You would be going, what? what is, that's the next thing you want us to, to know and to learn is some dude threw some seeds on the ground and some different stuff happened to the seeds. Like, I, I don't get what you're saying here. Can you, can you tell me? They, they were confused. Trust me, because it shows that the disciples were confused. But this is the shift in the ministry of Jesus that I spoke of. He, he goes from relatively plain, straightforward teaching. 
I healed this guy because I'm God. I cast out this demon because I'm God. Come to me, believe in me, all of these things. He was very clear in his motives. He was very clear in his intentions and what he was doing and all of those things. And then he switches to this. You see, if you were to flip back over to Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, John the Baptist is very clear in what is going on here. He says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he points to Jesus and says, because of that guy, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Very clear teaching. There is no reason to decipher that like a parable. It's Jesus is Jesus. He is the Messiah. The kingdom of heaven is here. Then in Matthew 4, 17, it says that Jesus himself went on teaching and saying over and over again, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand because of me. Follow me. Repent. Come to me. And yet here we are 10 chapters later and not a whole lot has really changed. Jesus is still going around saying these things. Yes, he's garnered some attention. Yes, there are some crowds that are following after him. Yes, all of that, but not a lot. The, the Pharisees are still doing Pharisee stuff. The Romans are still doing Romans. All of these things are still, the kingdom has not seemingly changed all that much. And we even see a lot of people are just following Jesus because he was entertaining. Or he was doing things they had never seen before. You see, Jesus has tried this, this blunt force trauma method of teaching, right? This follow me, I am Jesus, I am God. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. No reason to decipher it. And yet, many people still reject him. We even see in Matthew 12, which is just a chapter before, some people are already trying to conspire to kill him. They're trying to come up with a way to get rid of him. So... He switches gears. This was not some clever attempt at contextualizing the gospel so that more people would like him. This is not some pragmatic revamping of his methods because it didn't seem to be working to appeal to the masses and to make more people understand what he was saying. This is not it at all. This is a sovereign choice by a sovereign God to make a change to achieve his sovereign will. It's not Jesus going, uh-oh, this isn't turning out like I thought it would. Uh-oh, my numbers are going down. Uh-oh, people want to kill me. I better do something that's a little less offensive. I'll tell this random story about some seeds. He's making a sovereign choice because he has sovereign purposes behind them, as we will see in a moment. But you can tell this is clearly different to the people that are there, or the disciples would not have asked him the question. If it was just business as usual, the disciples would have just gone, okay, good job, good sermon, good story. But they come to him and say, hey, whoa, whoa, what are you, why, what, what are you doing? Why are you changing gears? This, why are you switching to this type of ministry? Why are you talking to the people in parables? So let's look at what he says when they ask. Read verse 11. It says, and he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. We see here yet again that it is God's sovereign choice who gets it and who doesn't get it. Who receives it and who doesn't receive it. Who understands it and who doesn't understand it. Even the disciples weren't so smart to figure it out or they wouldn't have been asking the question. And yet God, Jesus says it has been given to you, granted to you to understand this. You didn't understand it on your own. It's not that you're so smart and these people are so dumb. That as a matter of fact, it may have been the other way around. And yet Jesus 
is saying, no, 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 it has been given to you, even though you don't have understanding on your own, it has been given to you the right to understand, to know the secrets of the kingdom. God granted them understanding via the Holy Spirit, and to others he did not grant it. There is no other way to take that scripture. They were granted the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. We've seen this term over and over and over again in Matthew, kingdom of heaven. It's what John the Baptist was saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus was saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven. We see it yet again right here. So what is the kingdom of heaven? What is Jesus referring to here? Now there are, there are two answers to this question that are both equally correct. One, there is a present reality to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand right now, right this minute, because I am the king. I am the king of that kingdom, and my kingdom, while slow, and you may not even see it, it is advancing. My kingdom is growing. My kingdom is doing what my kingdom has set out to do. I am the king of that kingdom. That's why king and kingdom is the name of this sermon series, because that that language is used so much in Matthew. Secondly, though, there is a future reality to the kingdom of heaven. You see, we know, and Jesus is revealing through his ministry, that this king will return. This king will once again come, and when he returns, he will do the things that he is slowly doing now. He will make all things right. He will restore all things to the way they were before sin, and it will be completed. The king will return, and when he does, he will set all things right and rule over his kingdom in perfect harmony. There will no longer be a need for healing. There will no longer be a need for casting out demons. There will no longer be a need for mission work. It will simply be worship of that king, the king will sit on his perfect throne reigning over his perfect kingdom and he's saying I'm doing this you're getting a glimpse of it now because I'm making all things right we're not supposed to be in need of healing we're not supposed to have demons inside of us we're not supposed to die none of these things were supposed to happen the way I created it the first time and I am setting those things back to the way they should be I may not do it all at once you may wonder why I'm taking so long and yet I know through my sovereign will what I am doing, and then when I return, you will see it all come to fruition. You will see the full kingdom of heaven when I return. See, these are the secrets that have been revealed to the disciples that are being revealed to us as disciples now. And then in verses 12 and 13, he says another kind of cryptic saying in explanation of why he's shifted gears to this parable teaching says in verse 12 for to the one who has more will be given and he will have an abundance but from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away this is why I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear nor do they understand the explanation of this when I first read it I was like what I, I, okay you're gonna take some stuff you're gonna give some I, I don't know what you're doing the explanation is actually quite simple when you really look into it. He is saying here that these people claim to know a lot. These Pharisees, these uber-religious people, these elitists that think they're better than everyone else, they think they've really got something. They think they've got real knowledge. They think they've got real power. They think they've got real, 
real wisdom, but what they have is actually fool's gold. It's really nothing. It is just enough to get you to follow them. They may have disciples. They may have all of those things. But even that fool's gold will eventually be taken away. And they will have nothing. And they will be left hopeless. All the notoriety, all the fame, all the fake wisdom that they have, all the people listening to what they have to say, that even will be taken away. And they will have nothing. And they will be left hopeless and alone because they do not have faith in who I am. But you, disciples, you, on the other hand, it looks like right now you basically have nothing. You have me, a homeless teacher that no one seems to like. And less and less people are, are coming to our side, right? It looks like you are the ones that are going to be left hopeless. And yet more and more and more will be given to you. You may have to suffer for now. You may have to go through persecution for now. You may be ostracized and ridiculed and made fun of now, but there is a day coming and it will come to pass that your hope is not in something of this world. It is not in something hopeless, but that your hope is in a true and better king and you will be ushered into his true and better kingdom. So what you have now will be expanded to perfection it will be expanded to this kingdom of heaven this future reality of a kingdom of heaven that he is talking about and this is what he says to us today christian do not lose heart though you may be wasting away on the outside be renewed on the inside because because i know what i am doing i am still the king and all will be revealed and through all of your suffering for my sake will be worth it because much, much more will be given to you than you can even possibly imagine. And that is what he's saying here. These parables are simply revealing who is in what category. It's, you're either in this category or this category. It's all going to be taken away because you do not have faith in me. Or you are going to be given abundantly more because you do have faith in me. And then he reiterates this point by quoting here Isaiah 6. He reiterates that some are simply not going to get it. They're not going to hear and they're not going to understand. Uh, in Scripture here, it's verses 14 and 15. It says, Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Now if you've been in church much in your life, you have probably heard portions of this scripture in Isaiah preached. And here's how it went. Some preacher was trying to get people to go on a mission trip or become missionaries or to get at least get out of their comfort zone. And they preached the verse right before this, which is Isaiah 6, 8. It's a very dramatic verse where God, it's like God's looking, who's my, who's my next guy? Who's my next man? Who will we send to these people? And Isaiah steps up and he, dramatic music starts playing in the background. Who's it going to be? And he's like, here I am, Lord, send me, Right? Here I am, Lord, send me into that fray. Send me into that battle. I'll go for you. And it's like, it stops right there. The preacher doesn't preach the next verses, which is what we just read. Because even Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. The next line of that, it, goes, it says, Isaiah asked the Lord, what do I tell them? And God basically says, tell them that they're sinners and they're going to be judged. And there's really nothing they can do about it. Be encouraged. Have at it. 
Go right ahead. And Isaiah, Isaiah, still trying to be the optimist that Isaiah must have been, went, okay, cool, I'll tell him that. How long do I have to tell him that? And God says, until their cities lie in ruin and their land is a desolate waste. So forever, tell them that and tell them there's really nothing they can do about it. So they're going to repent? No, they're not. It's so discouraging that by the end of Isaiah, Isaiah is literally crying out to God saying, why have you done this? Why am I the only believer on the planet? That's what Isaiah says in Scripture. And God says, hey, 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 I'm doing what I'm doing. The ones that get it, get it. The ones that don't, don't. You're not the only one. There is a remnant of Israel that I am saving and I am still saving. So you just keep doing what you're doing. Isaiah does. To Spoiler alert, in case you haven't read that. But he doesn't have a lot of success. And God tells him ahead of time, that he's not going to have a lot of success. And yet, he, he goes. So verses 16 and 17 tells us why we should praise God because we are in the category that does get it. It says, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear hear it. Jesus is reminding the disciples that they were once just like these people. They were hardened, they were dull, they were blind, they could not see, and they could do nothing on their own to make themselves see, and yet God opened their eyes, God opened their ears, God was unwilling to allow them to stay blinded in their own sinfulness, and because of that, he should be praised and he should be obeyed. Because he is the one that brought forth sight. He is the one that brought forth hearing. Even when it's long odds, even when it seems hopeless, we praise God because we know that we only see because he has granted us sight. And God is simply reminding him that there are two types of people. We talked about this just a few weeks ago. You're either with Jesus or you're not. There is no middle ground where I'm kind of on both sides. I'm kind of with Jesus sometimes. I'm kind of over here against him at other times. You're with him or you're not. Because you see, what is very clear is that these Pharisees and these unbelievers had opportunity to see it, right? They were there with them they were there with the disciples. They were seeing all of these things that Jesus was doing. They did not see and hear because it wasn't right in front of them. Sin, their own sin, not God's sin, not God himself, their sin had blinded them and deafened them from seeing or hearing the truth. And that is true of everyone in this room and that is true of us. And yet on the flip side of grace, God granted some in spite of our sin that has blinded us and deafened us. He has granted us back our sight. He has granted us back our hearing so that we may understand the truth. That is why he is to be praised. He said, this is why it is God who receives the glory when some are saved because none of them deserved it and why it is human responsibility when they are not because everyone deserves wrath. We all willingly choose any and everything but God and God willingly chooses some to not get what they have chosen. C.S. Lewis once famously said, there are two types of people. Those who in this end say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. You see, 
God is simply giving these people what they want, what they have chosen. These parables are serving two purposes, to reveal and to conceal. It is to reveal the truth of who he is to some, and it is to conceal the truth because they're sitting there going, what does that mean? What did that story mean? It is concealing the truth to those people. It is a form of judgment like we see in Romans 1 where God says, you want it, you got it. This is what you have chosen. You have chosen sin over me. You have chosen creation over the creator. Here, you can have it. I I will let you have what you are asking me to have. And that is what he is doing here. God is not so much blinding them as much as he is just allowing them to remain blind. He is not unblinding them like he has for believers, like he has for us. It is self-made blindness, and he lovingly calls some to not get what they have created for themselves. And for that, he is worthy of all praise. Blessed are our eyes by God because they were opened by God. Blessed are our ears because we hear now that God has opened them for us. And because he is worthy of all of that praise, the way to praise him, one way to praise him, is to obey him. This is what we will discuss now when Jesus explains this parable. I'm not trying in any way uh, to improve upon what Jesus said here, but I do think there are implications and applications for us today that are not specifically said here that we can discuss. So I'm not trying to re-preach what Jesus explains to them. But we're going to read it and then see what that says to us today. Okay, verses 18 through 23. It says, Hear then the parable of the sower. So he's pulled the disciples away, by the way. This is just to the disciples because why? It it was given to them to understand. It was not given to the crowds to understand. So he says, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundred, in another sixty, in another thirty. See, Jesus gives a pretty straightforward answer here. I'm going to confess to you if I had been there that day and Jesus not explained it to me, I'd have been in the crowd going, what? Like, I, I don't know what you're saying here. And a lot of the other parables fit in that category for me. Theologians have blessed me with the knowledge of what the parables mean by studying the word but I, if I was there that day I'd have been like huh some dudes casting seeds yesterday you were calling me family and today you're confusing me but he explains it to disciple the disciples why because they were the ones chosen to receive and understand the word so the first thing to look at is the headings most of your bibles in the two headings about the parable probably say the parable of the sower if you have your own Bible and you are willing to write in your Bible, I would, I would not command you, but encourage you to cross out the word sower and write in the word soils. Reason for that is this parable is less about the sower and more about the soils. The soils are the only variable that changes in this, right? The same sower, the same seeds, 
but we take a closer look at the soils, the hearts of people. So what aspects do we have? The sower, the seed, the four soils, and then we have some minor components, the thorns, the birds, things like that. So who is the sower? It's the first logical question, right? We will get to that in a moment because this is the only part of the parable that Jesus never clearly, specifically defines. Every other part, he says specifically what he meant. But he says that when someone hears the words of the kingdom, there it is again. There's this term, this kingdom term again. So he clearly defines what the seeds are. The seeds are words of the kingdom. What are the words of the kingdom? We saw earlier the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why is it at hand? Because Jesus is at hand. Jesus is the king of that kingdom. So who is, if the words of the kingdom are the seeds, the kingdom is because of Jesus, then they are the words of Jesus. What are the words of Jesus? The words of, the, of Jesus are the gospel. That is what is being sown here. The words of Jesus' kingdom are the gospel. How can you be ushered into the kingdom by the king? Is by hearing and believing and trusting the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the seeds are the gospel. There is no other way to sow these seeds except by speaking the words of the gospel. Verbally speaking the good news that Jesus, who knew no sin, came to be sin for us, the sinners and enemies of God, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is sowing a seed. That is explaining the gospel of Jesus. Should we live that out? Absolutely. Should we live it out as we speak it? Even more absolutely. Those are the seeds, the words of the kingdom, not the deeds of the kingdom. Then we see the soils. The soils represent the hearts of those who hear the gospel. There are three bad and one good. James Montgomery Boyce, a theologian well known for his uh, biblical wisdom, describes the soils as a hard heart, a shallow heart, and a strangled heart. And I think these descriptions are perfect for what we see. See, the first soil along the path, Jesus explains that birds came and ate them. It wasn't because the birds were so fast and they just grabbed the seeds up or they were so smart and they knew where the seeds were located or then they would have eaten all the seeds. It's because they were sown along the path. The path was beaten down by traffic. People walking on it pressed it down and made it hard. The seeds had no way of penetrating the hardness of the path. So they just laid there out in the open where the birds could see them and they became easy pickings for the birds. You see, this hardened heart is seen all over the world. We think of the Pharisees during this time because they were the ones, they were curious about Jesus. They went out to hear what Jesus had to say. What's he going to do next? What does that mean? They were asking questions. They were most of the time trying to tear him down, but they were at least out there learning and trying to understand him. And then they quickly turned when he started saying things like, I forgive sins, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, I am this, I am that. They quickly turned against him. So they wanted to learn, but as soon as they learned something they didn't like, I'm out. I don't like you anymore. You can't do that. You can't be that. This is the same today. Many people know about Jesus. Many people intellectually agree with most of what Jesus is about. They like that he's loving and loves all people. They like that he's accepting and accepts all people. But then they hear, take up your cross and follow me. 
or that he not only requires but demands obedience to be a part of his family, to be his disciple for what he has accomplished on our behalf. And then they go, no, 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 I'm out. I love hippie Jesus that loves everybody. I love hipster Jesus that would never say somebody is wrong in any way, shape, or form. I don't like King Jesus. I don't like King Jesus who tells me how to live. I don't want King Jesus. But see, the thing is, is King Jesus is also loving and accepting. King Jesus is all of these things, but King Jesus is the only Jesus there is. He is the only true Jesus Hippie Jesus and hipster Jesus are fake Jesuses. King Jesus is the only real Jesus. He is the one that we must follow and not harden our hearts to the things that we don't like about him or the things that we don't want to agree with about him. But we see all over the world people hardening their hearts because they hear things that can't be true about the Jesus that I know. Then we see the rocky soil. The soil is not the same as the hardened soil because there are cracks and avenues for the roots to quickly grab onto. So the seed sprouts and it grabs onto whatever it can grab onto, but it can't really take root and it quickly dies because it's not deeply rooted. It says the sun comes and scorches it, but anything can come and take a seed from rocky soil because it is not deeply rooted. Again, we see this today. And part of this falls on pastors. When you preach a half-hearted gospel that does not mention that, you know what, following Jesus may not always be the greatest day of your life. Following Jesus comes with persecution, comes with ostracism, comes with ridicule, may come with death even today. When we preach a half-hearted gospel that doesn't include those things, then the the unrooted person falls away from their so-called faith because they didn't sign up for that. It's like signing up for the military and then quitting when you go, oh, we have to fight? I'm not in on that. That's not what I signed up for. And Jesus is very clear that that is what you are signing up for. He does not ever, not one time, sugarcoat the gospel. He does not one time leave that part out. He, He always preaches This may be hard. Many people turn away from him because he preaches that message. Oh, that's what I'm signing up for? Then I'm out. And Jesus says, okay, I can't change what you're signing up for. And that is what we must do. That doesn't mean we preach fire and brimstone. That doesn't mean we try try to scare people away from Jesus. We just tell them the truth. This is what scripture says. This is what you're signing up for. This is what the gospel means. Following Jesus may be difficult. And you have to be ready for that. And you have to be deeply rooted in what he, who he is and what he says. But many people gauge their success on how many hands they can get raised, how many people they can get in the baptistry waters, how many people they can get to say a prayer. So they'll sugarcoat anything to get you to raise their hand because we need thousands upon thousands of Christians to go out and try to save the world. And Jesus is saying, man, give me 12 dudes that are willing to die. I'll change the whole world for all time. I need 12 people that are willing to die for for me and I will change this world. I will set up a new kingdom starting with these 12 people and that is what we must be aiming for. Not just as pastors but as Christians. 
people that are willing to die, knowing that they may die for this. And at the very least, they have to die to themselves for this. That is what taking up your cross means. It means to die to yourself. Your desires are no longer what is at the forefront. It is what Jesus has for you, and that is what you are signing up for. I read a story this week about Martin Lloyd-Jones. Many people consider him the greatest preacher, modern preacher of today's time. They clearly never heard me preach, but whatever. One day, he preached a powerful sermon, and afterward, a man approached him and said, Dr. Jones, if you had given an altar call today, I would have come forward. That was a great sermon. I would have believed had you done an altar call today, and Dr. Jones I can imagine, based on his voice, it's not as if I've ever met him, but just based on the calmness of his voice pretty much at all times, he said, if you don't want Jesus five minutes after the service is over, then I assure you, you didn't truly want him at any point during my sermon. We must be devoted for life to this Jesus. We must be loyal for life to this Jesus. This is the rocky soil. People love what they hear at first, but then the truth comes, and they say, I don't want the Paul Harvey rest of the story. I, that's, not, that's not what I signed up for. I don't, I don't want that Jesus. I wanted this Jesus. Then the third soil is the thorny soil. These seeds also seem to sprout. So they got roots at somewhat. But then the thorns came and choked them out. The thorns, Jesus explained, are the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. This is extremely easy to see in today's culture. You see, this is not simply people not loving Jesus. That's the first soil. The first soil is the hardened heart that I don't want anything. I don't even want the good parts of Jesus. I don't love him. He's saying things that are crazy. I do not want, I'm hardened. I'm not even taking any root in that. This is not what this is. This is people that, that probably love some form of what they think of Jesus. They just love other things more, especially money. C.S. Lewis, again, quoting him, puts it like this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. That is what is in the, the, the thorns. That is what is happening. We... We just settle for the status quo. This is good enough. Jesus is promising me his kingdom. I'll take this over here. This is now. I don't have to wait for this. I don't have to be patient for this. I don't have to suffer for this. I'll just take this over here. This is good enough for me. That is the, the ones that fell among the thorns. These people are everywhere in the world today. And we must offer them a true and better Option. We must offer them a better gospel, not sugarcoating it and telling it will all be great because then, then they just fall into the rocky soil, right? We have to cover all three of these bases. Hardened hearts, shallow hearts, and strangled hearts must be addressed by the gospel we preach. But some people are never going to be in the rocky soil. They're never going to be that type of person. They may be the ones among the thorns where they love things of this world too much and that is the gospel they need to hear. The good news of the gospel is that it is for all people. The answer to whatever it is that is bothering them or whatever it is that is keeping them from the truth, the gospel is the answer to that and we must preach the whole gospel. This, 
then we get to the good soil. The good soil hears the same message that all of these other people heard. It goes into their ears the same way that it does anyone else. And yet, they understand it. This is what we talked about earlier. God has given, granted the gift of understanding to some and not to others. This is the good soil. It is the same seeds planted here. It is the same words they are hearing. The difference is the understanding. God chooses to illuminate to some what these words mean for their lives. And what we must understand and never become too arrogant in is that we are all, every one of us in this room, every one of us in this world, that has ever lived by nature the other three soils. We should never become so arrogant that we did anything to change the nature of our soil. God did that. Our hearts are all naturally hard, naturally shallow, or naturally strangled. One of those three. But then God changes our hearts from stone to flesh so that the words of his kingdom can be sown and take root in our lives. So who is the sower? There are three trains of thought here. Quickly, one, some people say the sower is God himself. He is the one that is in control of all things, so he is the one sowing the seeds. Two, Jesus is the sower. He is the one speaking and being the true and better word, living out the perfection of the gospel, living this righteous life, and telling people who he is and how to be saved. The gospel of Matthew, the very next parable we'll talk about, which will be after Advent, but the very next parable... Jesus is literally word for word referred to as the sower of the good seeds. So Jesus, in some people's eyes, is the sower. And then third, the sower is us. Every Christian who believes the true gospel, who has been sown in their heart, has taken root, and God has granted understanding to the gospel. We are the sowers. And my answer is that all three of those are true. God sowed Jesus. I know that's a weird way of saying it, but God sent Jesus. He sowed Jesus into the world to reveal about himself who he is in an earthly form. Jesus then sowed the knowledge of who he is and what he came to accomplish in his redemptive plan. And then he sends us to also sow that same truth, not about what he is going to accomplish, but what he has already accomplished in the forgiveness of sins on the cross and his resurrection. So all three are true. God started the process, Jesus continued the process, and now he commands and commissions us to go, therefore, and plant these same seeds of the gospel. So what does that mean for us? What we see here is that there's really only one variable, and that is the soil. Nowhere does Jesus blame the sower of the seeds for not sowing correctly, and nowhere does he blame the seeds for not growing correctly. He says the difference is what soil the seeds fell in. What hearts of the people. So here's the application. Be a sower. Be a sower of the gospel. Cast these seeds. We are all, every one of us, called to sow these seeds. There are no bad sowers if you truly believe the gospel. There are no bad seeds if you are sowing the true gospel. Even if you do a terrible presentation of the gospel, you've still cast a seed because you have talked about the true and better king and the true and better kingdom. So if the variable is the soils, the logical question then might be, how do we tell? How do we know this person's heart is softened to the gospel and this person is hardened to the gospel and there's no hope? And the answer is, we don't. 
God never tells us who is who. Nowhere in the explanation of this parable does God, Jesus even imply that it is our job to only sow to certain types of soil or to only sow to certain types of people. We are simply to cast the seeds everywhere we go. This is not an agricultural lesson where we're searching for the good soil. This is a spiritual lesson that says, cast the seeds indiscriminately and I will be the one who either gives them the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom like I did for you or I won't. I am the God of the soil. I am the God of the heart. You simply cast the seeds and I'll take care of the rest. The soil is my job. The seeds are yours. See, this is the encouraging part of the whole deal. Some of you are sitting there going, I don't really, I've never really sowed a seed before. I don't know. You don't have to be a master sower. God takes care of that. All you have to know, God created the world. He made it perfect. He made it whole. He made it righteous. And then man sinned and screwed it up. And then because of that sin, it has trickled down to every human being that has ever lived. We have all sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And we have no way of reconciling ourselves back to God. But God, Ephesians 2, 4, but God sent Jesus into this world for, with a redemptive plan to die after he had lived a perfect life on a cross in our place and be resurrected three days later. What are you going to do about that? I just cast the seeds to everyone in this room. That is the gospel message. That is what we are to sow. That is what we are to tell a lost and dying world. We don't have to flower it up. We don't have, it doesn't have to be 15 minutes long. That was, what, 20 seconds? And that was the gospel. That is what we must take from this place to people that are lost and undone, to hardened hearts, to shallow hearts, and to strangled hearts. Because they don't always have to be those. Because God is the God of the soil. God is the God of the hearts. And he can change those hearts. I had lunch with a guy this week on Friday. We discussed a lot. Of, it was the most open disagreeing conversation I've ever been a part of it was it was great seriously we were just able to exchange ideas and express our thoughts no anger no emotions any of those things but he asked me throughout this if I really thought that if I really believe that God is in complete control of who gets it and who doesn't what soil receives the seed all of those things if I really thought that God was in complete control of that, and it was already determined by God, then why would I go out and evangelize? Basically, he was saying, why would you go cast any seed to anyone? And I said, believing that way is actually the only reason that I go and cast these seeds. Because I know that if it's left up to men and women of this world, they're hardened, they're shallow, and they're strangled, and they will never, and they can never, turn to God on their own. But I know that God is a God of the soils, that God is a God of the heart, and he can change those hearts. And I know that he is powerful enough to do so. And I said, just because God knows who is on the list does not mean that I know who is on the list. And I go out believing that God can change anyone. And I believe that if I share the gospel once and they say no, that I just share it again and again until that person is not breathing anymore or I'm not breathing anymore. Then we have hope that God will change their hearts so we cast the seed. We are commanded to cast the seed. Why did God set it up this way? I don't know, but that's what he did. That's what he said, this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to spread my kingdom this way. So you go and cast the seeds. So to the unbeliever in the room, if you are in here and you do not believe in Jesus, the seed has been cast. I implore you to repent and turn to Jesus because he is the only one that can save you. He's the only one that can can redeem you from the slavery that you yourself put yourself in.
turn to him and say, thy will be done. Believers, I'm assuming is the majority of the people in here. Go and cast seed. I don't know how to flower that up any better than just go. Go cast seed. We are commanded to go cast the seed. The words of the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus, and then let time tell us what kind of soil the seeds fell on. We're not here to determine that. Jesus determines that. God is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our obedience. And proclaiming the gospel is what he has commanded us to do. So as abrupt as this is, this is the end of the sermon. Because I don't know how to, to soup that up any. Go cast seed. Go share the gospel. Go evangelize. And don't say, well, God already knows this is going to be saved, so I, what, what work do I have to do? God knows we don't. Go share the gospel. I can't say that firmly enough. I'm saying it to me because I don't do it nearly enough. I see people lost and hurting, and I know the answer is the gospel. And yet, you know what? I'm going to go about my business. I'm going to go do what I was set out to do. I'm on a time schedule here. I don't have 15 minutes to spare talking to that person about Jesus. I'm preaching to me as much as I am to anyone in this room. But we must go. We must cast seed. We must share this gospel. That's it. I'm done. I'm going to pray here in a minute. I'm trying to wind this down in a clean way. And I just don't know how. We got to go. We got to go cast seed. Let's pray.